So I'm going to invite you to join me if you feel free to, or feel comfortable singing. If not, just continue to be present with yourself as we move into our, our sharing today, letting the music open us and prepare us. Please join me. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very invite you to just notice where you are energetically, bringing your awareness into your physical body, grounding yourself, calling your attention to that spot between the, the, your two eyes, called the third eye. It is said when we close the two eyes, that eye opens. And then bringing your awareness down to your heart that heart chakra, that energy center, that divine center of compassion and love and divine and wisdom, empathy. Imagine your mind's eye, your heart actually breathing and as, with each breath opening, putting us in a beautiful position not only to, to receive love but also to offer to anyone that comes to mind, anyone that is in our field of awareness that is in any way, shape or form struggling or challenged with anything, let us offer the fullness of our hearts in this moment. For what we know at that spiritual level, at that quantum field of energy, is that we are always connected to those we love. So we're offering love in this moment, and ironically, the more we offer, the more we receive in return. And now moving down into that intuitive center, a couple inches below your navel point, is that, that seed of divine intelligence where intuition is activated. Let us activate our intuition in this moment as we just simply bring our awareness to it. Simply by calling our awareness to those energy centers, we are shifted and changed. And so I affirm and know and invite you to allow my words as we prepared ourselves mentally, spiritually, and physically for prayer. What a gift this day is. This, this day is all we have to live. And so I stand in the gratitude and appreciation, recognizing the, recognizing the presence of spirit in and through and as all of life. Opening myself to that awareness, knowing that my life is God's life. Individualized, that I am a, a wave of, of the infinite, the divine, in the ocean of the divine, as are all my brothers and sisters, everyone upon this planet. And so I give thanks in this moment to affirm and know as I impress upon this infinite divine intelligence that is always saying yes to each thought that I'm open and receptive to the next good knowing, knowing for myself that I'm resourced and supplied in the fulfillment and the expansion of my soul and being that outlet for God's expression upon this planet with my unique gifts and talents so that everywhere I go I am blessed and I offer my blessing as well. 
by showing up and being who I am and the beauty and the joy and the possibility of opportunity. And so I just give thanks knowing all of us are, are resourced in every good way. If we choose to think and entertain that opportunity, it becomes more and more alive in our experience. So I give thanks knowing everything necessary for you and I to stand more and more intimately connected to the source of our being. I give thanks. And together we say, and so it is. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Teresa. Wonderful music today with Teresa and Darren and Kelly and, and Tom. Tom on drums. All right. Practices to transformation and renewal. I was wondering what I was talking about today. This is great. Well, welcome. We had a... I, we're, we're, we're filling up nicely here, second service. First service was jam-packed because a lot of people had tea times, I guess, or something. Or, or I haven't taken the cruise down the Edmonton Bell. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Edmonton Queen, thank you. Maybe today. It hasn't really been on my bucket list, but we'll see. You know, I, lo- I love this video with the teens, and Keith Cox is the, the minister there, and, and um, I want to just tell this story real quick. Uh, years ago, Laura and I went to the, my wife Laura and I went to the Parliament of Rural Religions, and we went down to Australia, and it was great. We were in Melbourne, and then we said, hey, let's fly up to the Great Barrier Reef. Let's go, let's go um, snorkeling. So we got on an airplane, we went up there, and Keith He's an amazing guy to travel with, and he, he handles uh, all of our, our youth training and things like that, and all the teens love him and know him. He's been doing it for years. And he lives in, in Los Angeles. He lives in West Hollywood. Great guy. So Keith, first of all, to get up there, he went, he went to a, some travel thing, and he found a, a condo for us to stay in for a week up there and got the flights all lined up. I mean, he's really, really a great traveler. And on the way back, we were, we were coming back, and uh, he was on the airplane. We were flying back to Sydney, and he said, I'll be right back. And he gets up off the, his seat and he goes in the back and he's like, gone the whole flight. He didn't come back until we were ready to land. And it's a couple hour flight. And I said, where have you been? And he's got a bottle of champagne under his arm. And I said, what's going on? And he said, oh, I was just back there talking to the stewardesses. So they gave me a bottle of champagne and they, they gave me a list of restaurants we got to go to and the hotels we can stay in. And I've got all their phone numbers in case we have questions. Now, this guy knows how to travel. I was always impressed by Keith. So whenever I see him, I think, nah, that's the guy you want to travel with. We were going up there, too, and we rented a van that Keith was driving, and of course, it's on the wrong side of the road, in my opinion, anyway. And, uh, we, we, and we're up, up there, and just these beautiful sandy beaches, and we're like, how come nobody's swimming? So we get out of the van, we go splash in the water. This is incredible. Nobody's out. And we get into Cairns, and they say, well, whatever you do, don't go in the water where it's not netted off, because these box jellyfish will uh, sting you and kill you. And we're like, ah, that's why nobody's on the beach, okay? We didn't know. Yeah, they don't, it's not like, ouch, it's like, dead. Like, mm. fact, Australia is amazing. It's like anything there. I mean, it's like, the guy said, don't touch that, that'll kill you. Like, really? Hmm. It's amazing what that, what, uh, so, enough about that. It's nothing to do with today, but other than my story with Keith, who I love dearly. So, we're using this book by Mel Robbins called, Stop Saying You're Fine. Because fine is just code for, I'm stuck, I'm fine. Everything's fine. And I love that. And she's just, she, I mean, she's so good with the second kingdom stuff, the second kingdom of consciousness where we can be, where we start to take responsibility for our lives. We work up the courage to make changes and shift things. We need that. You, otherwise, we stay in victim consciousness. Where it's, ah, we're just stuck, stuck, stuck. But, but so it's a great book on second kingdom. I love that. Because second kingdom is important to move into the third kingdom, which is co-creation. 
which is living in a greater state of grace and peace and connection with spirit. But we got to do the first and second to get to the third. Can't skip a kingdom. So stop saying you're fine is, is um, what slide we got up there? So the, 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 um, the steps. The steps are face it, you're not fine. Admit what you want. Go public with what you want. Zoom out and create a map and lean into change. And this is wonderful information. I'm only going to do the first three today because there's a lot of great information, and next week I'll finish it up with. So those, those are our, our, our five, and we're going to do the last two plus the seven habits to transformation that I'm going to, well, we'll have a discussion about next week as well. Yeah, so next week it's going to look like, next slide, May 31st. There it is. We're going to zoom out and create a map, lean into change, and the seven-day stamina workout. Because it's just such good, such rich and wonderful information. And a lot of times I don't get to finish the book before we start. So I'm reading along. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like a step ahead of you. And so when I get into it, I realize, wow, this is so, such great stuff. I don't want to uh, skip over anything that I think could be valuable. So face it, you're not fine is one of the first steps. And she talks about stop being stuck because it's so easy to get stuck in our lives. You know, we get, we're so used to, we get locked into these patterns. But what she says that is so poignant is powerful people tell the truth. And she talks in the book about being stuck and resistant or being powerful. Because it's just one, it's, it's like in the twinkling of an eye, as it says it in scripture. In the twinkling of an eye. How do we turn it, step into being powerful people? Well, we, t- we tell the truth where we are. Because inertia, being stuck where we are, being in fear, being in that, that, that inertia of not moving forward is a form of suffering. It's just very quiet suffering. And so she talks about that. I loved last week. She said about, you know, a lot of times we don't want to risk it's uncertain and it doesn't feel good but what what is the cost if we don't risk a lot of times we don't consider that but if I stay here I know what it feels like and I know I'm in inertia I know I feel stuck but but and and so there's a there's a uh, a, a, become paralyzed in a sense so I love this this the work that she's done because she coaches us in a way that makes sense that it doesn't have to be a a wholesale change we don't have to change everything overnight Last week we talked about doing small things differently, brushing your teeth with the other hand starts to create different neurotransmitters in the brain, going home a different route, um, putting, someone just said to me, putting your pants on, going out there, putting your pants on the other leg first. All those things break up that habitual patterns in our minds, in our brains with the neurotransmitters. Another another, uh, practice she talks about is slowing down right now. The practice of slowing down. So we to get busy, 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 and not just with activity, in our minds. Slowing down right now. Many times we'll see people go on a holiday and come back, and they come up with a, a whole new insight about what they want to do with their lives. Or they'll take a, uh, go on a retreat. They'll go on an extended retreat, and all of a sudden new awarenesses open up. But it just speaks volumes to what wants to inform us and instruct us is, is alive. It's there. But when we get into the busyness and the frantic uh, nature of life, the, the ability to listen and to perceive that is not as rich. So slowing down is, is a good thing. That's why we emphasize prayer and we emphasize meditation. 10 minutes a day of meditation every day is more impactful and more powerful than an hour one day a week. 10 minutes of some form of meditation where you can quiet the mind and slow down. If, you don't, if you're not familiar with them, we do at early service, we do our meditation here, and we have about 70 or 80 people that come. And it's not a long meditation, but it's so beautiful and powerful, and it sets the energy for the day. 
because we are the center for spiritual living and part of spiritual living is connecting with that God as you know it. So time, slowing down allows us time to be present and honest with ourselves. It's time to go deep as well. As you know, I'm a big fan of and I'm very supportive of because it's been such a powerful practice in my life, the co-creation work. We're doing a sacred healing circle on Wednesday this week. And it really is an opportunity to look at error beliefs that we have, things that we're living from that, no, that just aren't in our best interest, but they're a habitual embodied belief. And so when we can bring awareness to it and with love and with consciousness dissolve it, we make room for the greater yet to be. Because part of it is also is welcome, welcoming the qualities of God or the infinite or the divine or spirit into our being in a bigger way. And then the, the last piece on this, face it, you're not fine, is auditing your life. Auditing your life is writing down some of the negative things that are going on in your thinking. Writing it down, which seems counterintuitive to, because for the most part, we think, well, we found this place, and it used to be the center for positive living and all this. But, but when, we, when we do the spiritual bypass of praying over or affirming over a condition that is painful or negative, um, we're not serving ourselves well. So the co-creation work that we do or, or, or going deep at auditing our lives is really about dissolving those error beliefs. It turns out, as, it's, as she says, that writing down how you feel and describing the negative emotions decreases the activity in your amygdala, that, that center of your brain that's the alarm that goes off when things get bad. So one of the ways to dissolve it, as Dr. Holmes, our founder, would say, is to look at it long enough so it no longer has power over us. And writing it down, believe it or not, doesn't empower it. It simply brings us up into our awareness so we can look at it and realize, wow, this is triggering me. This is driving my behavior. It's putting me into fear. It's keeping me up at night, whatever it may be. And I know, and I struggle with that too, and I have a lot of things going on. Sleep, sleep patterns are so huge and important. But to manage it better, to manage it better, and to manage ourselves better, our energy, our vitality, our awareness, how we're, how we're showing up in the world. She continues, in Your Money and Your Brain by Jason Zwig, in Your Money and Your Brain, title of the book, Jason Zwig explains that your negative emotions tend to hijack your decision-making and cause you to make really dumb decisions, especially with money. When people write down their negative feelings before they make financial decisions, they make better ones. Similarly, studies show that dieters who write down what they eat lose twice as much weight as dieters who rely on only their heads. See, change your thinking, change your life. Wonderful idea. Wayne Dyer talks about it all the time. Great idea, but it doesn't work. Because what we have to do is have a trigger. We have to ground it in our physical being as well. It's a, it's a noble idea, but, but so many noble ideas flow through there. And if we don't ground them some way physically, have some way, like Eckhart Tolle said, bring that, that idea into your awareness and then ground it with, with touch in your hands. Make it something uh, kinesthetic. Because I'm a kinesthetic learner, so I get that stuff. I'm, I learn a lot faster when I can actually uh, uh, touch things. That's why I was such a good carpenter. Because there was such a, a connection for me in the creativity. I used to have a cabinet shop and I made amazing things. And a lot, well, I didn't make amazing things. God made amazing things through me. But it was very kinesthetic for me. It grounded me. It was truly my spiritual pa- uh, practice. And when you stay inside your head and ignore your discontent, you tend to forget details and make emotional decisions. So that's just working with ourselves wisely. Slowing ourselves down. Grounding it. Paying attention, realizing, hmm, I have fear about that. Write it down, look at it, say, no, I'm not going to feed this any more energy. It's powerful spiritual practice. 
The next one is admit what you want. So when we give, we give our life's direction, when we give our life's direction, I mean, we are here to choose. In Genesis, it says that God gave man, meaning humanity, dominion over the earth to name things. And it continues today. We still name things. But when we give our life's direction, it becomes a beacon, the direction that we choose to head in. In imagining your future, when we imagine our future, and this is basic metaphysics, it's all over the culture now, when we start to imagine our future, we begin to build it. And it starts with a thought, starts with an idea. And the more often we do that and dip into that every day, so we spend 10 minutes in meditation and then say, no, I'm gonna imagine the, the most beautiful future possible for myself. I'll spend five minutes on that or 10 minutes on that and build that, that proficiency. To learn how to think is to learn how to live. And this infinite divine presence is always saying yes to whatever it is we give it. Focus is, it, and so when, we, when we, we begin to focus our attention, focusing it gives our life direction, it focuses our attention, it allows us to focus more fully on what we want. On the, they call it outcome stimulation. Direct your mind to think about an outcome you desire, whatever it may be. See, my challenge with that is I'll think of something and I go, oh, well, I don't have time and I don't have this and I'm not smart enough and on and on and on. And what I find is that when I think about focusing on what, it, what the outcome would like to be, I have to just be able to manage that chatter. That chatter comes up for all of us. Oh, you can't do that. Stop that. You're too old now to do that. Whatever it may be, whatever the limitation is. Challenging our stories. Well, we all have stories. We all have stories of how we were nurtured or raised or, you know, uh, domesticated. I like domestication because it's just a little more flat, you know. But, you know, I had so many experiences like you did of things that didn't feel like love, that people that showed up that were what I felt was perhaps, um, you know, I didn't want to hang out with them a whole lot. I, I told a story at the earlier service about a priest that I had growing up in a, a, a parochial school, a Catholic school. And, uh, and he, was, he was quite, he was the disciplinarian in our school. And I was always the guy that was, uh, wanted to entertain the class. I felt that that was my calling. <laughs> and so it was good because when I was up front, I, I could do it through, you know, I didn't have to use words, just, you know, behavior. And that would always get a, re a reaction. And then they moved me to the back of the class and it became much more difficult because then I had to come up with words that would, of course, uh, draw the attention to me and distract the class and... Uh, then I achieved my goal. My purpose was there to, to entertain. It always has been. And uh, so they would call the disciplinarian and they would bring him over and he would take me out in the hallway and he'd work me over. I mean, and he didn't work me over verbally. He worked me over physically. And not to the point where I was bleeding, but just so he'd get to the point where I would be sobbing and they'd send me back into the classroom to shame me and embarrass me. So what I realized from that was that was never a behavior I was going to engage in from that perspective. Uh, but it took me a long time to unravel that and realize that guy was doing the best he knew how. And if I had to deal with me at that point in time too, I probably would have, you know, engaged. That was a cultural thing then. And it was done, it was done in a way, I mean, it wasn't to, to, to maim or kill out of, of meanness, but it was the only way, it was one of the tools they had and they used it. I had that all the way through high school too. And I got more, I got better and better keeping my mouth shut and realize picking my spots. But anyway, that's part of my story of what I realized and probably set me up for what I do now. 
In fact, my sister, I have seven of them. One of my sisters uh, went and saw him when he was just before he died. And uh, she told him, you know, you know what my brother Pat's doing? And uh, he said, no, what? And he says, he's a minister now. And he says, well, I fu- I'm glad he found God somewhere. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty sweet. But you make peace with it. You have to find some way of making peace and forgiving it. Just because otherwise you live in resentment. That guy was doing the best he knew how. One guy and uh, 300 kids going crazy. I mean, I get it. This idea of I, either or, or either, either or narrative. So it's all or nothing. That, okay, I have this dream and I want to do this. But if I do that, to get to that, I've got to give up my work. I've got to give up my life. I don't, I, how do I, pay, I support my family? How do I live? On and on and on. And it doesn't, when we use that either or narrative, it can limit us. It can lock us down. It's like, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. What small steps can I set, take to set myself up for moving into that? I, you know, I've gone through this with crea- creative things, and I realized, you know what? I've got I to parcel this out in smaller sections and do something every day. Do something every day that moves me in the direction of what I would like to express and create rather than thinking, well, I've got to sit down in one month, I've got to write the book. Or six weeks, I'm going to write the book. Every day. Because you know what? If you write 300 words a day, by the end of the year, you've got a book. You've got something written, anyway. So it's, the, this is obstacle thinking. When we frame it as radical, um, chances are we'll just stay stuck. I can't do that. It's too big. And what if I don't know what I want? That's a big one. Anybody here don't know what they want? Just can put your finger. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, a couple. I was just going to ask for fingers up because most people don't want to go like that. But, but, so a lot of people, it's like, I don't, I don't know what I want, which is another form of resistance. I'm going to teach classes all the time. So I don't know what I want. Something within you does know. Malcolm Gladwell, great writer, uh, was raised and born in uh, eastern Canada, I think Toronto, and, you know, has now written all these books, um, Blink, uh, What the Dog Saw, um, the other one that's really famous, Outliers, that's a good one, which one? Yeah, anyway, but he's written a lot of great books, his first, so he, here he is, a young guy, and he's got long hair, and uh, he's driving around Toronto, and he gets pulled over by the cops, because he looks like a suspect they're looking for. And so instead of getting mad, instead of feeling, it inspired him. He said that, he said, my life changed. One of the most significant ways the long hair impacted my life was an incident when three police officers jumped out of a van because of my long, wild hair. And he said, as Gladwell put it, that episode on the street gave me, got me thinking about the weird power of first impressions. He used it as inspiration. Wait a minute, look at this. Holy cow. Whims are a window into your desire and they change your life in small but significant ways. When you feel one brewing, it's because it's been building for a while. If you had the time in this moment to act on a whim, what would you do? Who would you contact? Someone. Would you go to a yoga class or attend a seminar or entrepreneurship? Would you plan a trip? Great question. But I mean, it's just a great insight. What inspired the book? It wasn't something that we would probably call positive. He misidentified. He said, wow, look at that. First impressions. Boom, boom, boom. Or boredom. Boredom is very interesting. Anybody here ever bored? If you're bored right now, let me know. Yeah, okay, one in the back. You just need to move up front. It's a lot more exciting up here. Anyway, um, I have holes in my pockets. They're full of quarters, and they just keep rolling out, so you might... Anyway, boredom, um, they've done a lot of, they've studied everything. I mean, it's a, we live in such a great time. You know, our parents didn't, didn't go to church and hear about all these studies and, and boredom. But there's a guy by the name of Stephen Vandevich at the University of West Florida 
who's been studying boredom for over 20 years. So he hasn't been bored at all. He's had something to look at. And so what he said is that there's, there, there's, when we're bored, there's no right thing to think or do. But, but boredom, what, what takes us out of boredom is, is getting triggered. So like if you go to Dutch's Bakery, anybody here been to Dutch's Bakery? Yeah. And you're in line with your number, it's boring. But what snaps you out of it is your number getting called. It's like, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's just the way we're going. That's the way I'm, I experience. Oh, I'm in line. There's 20, I'm counting the people. Okay, six more to go. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. But what he says is you've got to call your own number wherever you are. You can shift it by finding something interesting in the environment, something to look forward to. I've, to, I've told my kids this, raising parenting children, because they'll always come up and say, hey, you know, I want that. And I'll say, that is fantastic. That is so good that you want that. So every time you get bored, think about wanting that, because wanting's a really good thing. And they sort of stare at me like, well, aren't you going to do anything to get that? I said, no. Then you'd just move on to something else you'd want. So well, let's just stay right here and enjoy this wanting. Come on. They didn't like that. They still don't like that. But it takes us out of boredom. I mean, that's life though, isn't it? I want that. Hey, that's for me. Over there, I'll have one of those. You know, it's like that uh, scene in, when Harry met Sally in the restaurant and the lady fakes the orgasm, or Sally uh, fakes the orgasm, and the lady at the next table says, I don't know what it is, but I'll have whatever she's having right over there. <laughs> yeah. So go public with what you want. Go public with what you want. We need other people. We need one another. You know, I was talking about early service, like 98th. I lived down at the other end of 98th over the James McDonald Bridge. They, they, there's these guys there right now paving the road for me. I'm just like, wow, this is great. This is my road. And these guys are there putting a new pavement down. No potholes. I'm, that's the story I'm making up about it. But I'm so grateful they're there. I'm so grateful that there's been planning. And all of us have came, come together. We pay taxes. There's all kinds of things that go into this thing. But in so many ways, the people that have mentored us and nurtured us, other people accelerate our pace. I was, when I was a young man and I was pursuing a, a career in acting, I read Anthony Quinn's uh, biography because I always loved him and I thought he was a wonderful actor. And in it, he talked about how he studied because he came from a background of very limited resources. His mother and father, his father was Irish, his mother was Mexican, and he grew up in Mexico. And they didn't have a lot of resources. And he, you know, he came across the border illegally as a young man and he was finding his way in Hollywood. So he started reading the Greek classics. And he would read them out loud because he had a speech impediment. He actually saved his money and had uh, some work done on his tongue because his tongue was uh, restricted his elocution. And then he would listen to operas every week. He would pick out an opera because he wanted to expose himself to these bigger, richer, classic ideas. And he grew himself as a result of identifying with people. So if you have to find two people in your life that inspire you, that you can look at and go, that's for me. That's the life that I would love to live. And then find out everything you possibly can about them and, do, and incorporate into your life the things that help you move into that proficiency. That, and that was so informative for me when I read Anthony Quinn. So I started reading books I would never read. Started listening to things I would never listen to. You know, my whole, my whole way of looking at the world shifted and changed because somebody I admired had done it. And I thought, wow, I can follow that path. This is wonderful. Our relationship with people are the most important aspects of our lives. They really are. I have wonderful, wonderful mentors in my life to this day. I know that I, couldn't, I would not be able to continue to do this work for so many years. I've been at it now, I think, uh, almost 20. 
And you know what? I was, I was on the internet the other day. I was having a really, I was surfing the web. And I was having a really low day, real low energy, been a lot of exciting things happening. And I was looking at minister burnout. I wanted to check and say how I was doing. And do you know how many, you know what the, the, the fallout rate is, the dropout rate monthly for ministers in the West? Per month, you guys already heard this, so you can't say. Per month, 1,500 ministers in North America quit per month. And I thought, wow, look at that. And you can understand why. Uh, you know, one of the things that prepared me for this, I gotta tell you, I spent 10 years in Hollywood being rejected. I'm telling you, it, it's, it's true. If I hadn't done that, I probably couldn't, I could probably, because there's so many things that go on that have nothing to do with me, but, but when, you're, when you're wired into such a weird combination because you want to be emotional and be, you know, be uh, empathetic with people, and then people start projecting their unhealed stuff on you, and you think it's personal. They're just doing what they need to do. I mean, it took me like 15, <laughs> 15 years to figure that out. It was like, oh my gosh, this had nothing to do with me. I keep taking it personal. I was able to quit drinking and doing hard drugs. I was able to do all that. No, just kidding. I didn't know. No, but I'm just saying. Because, you, you know, you, you show up, you talk about vulnerability, you talk, talk about love, you talk about, you talk about the Christ consciousness, the Buddha nature, empathy and compassion. And then stuff shows up that doesn't look like anything like empathy and compassion. It's like, what the heck is this all about? But that's the learning. And, and I, I know if I hadn't spent 10 years going to these auditions with all these fantasies in my mind, this job is going to be the one. Climb out of a pile of sawdust, put my tool bags down, drive over, clean myself up, go in, read the, read, they call them sides, go in and read the sides, meet with the casting director, put my work duds back on, go back, climb into the sawdust, put my work belt back on, go to work. And it, and, you know, it just, it grows you, it grows you. And I, and I, you know, looking back, like Steve Jobs says, you can't connect the dots going forward, but you sure can going back. I'm like, wow, that was perfect training. If you can do that, you can do anything. I'm serious. Because you get used to hearing no. You know, you hear things like, oh, you're too young. You're too something. Okay. So, you know, these relationships and having mentors in our lives are so important. So I want to share this story with you to conclude because I think it's such a powerful impact about the journey, the evolution of us in consciousness. And it's, a, it's one of my favorite writers uh, by the name of Greg Lavoie. He wrote a book called Callings a number of years ago. It's also one of my favorites. This book is uh, just phenomenal. It's full of rich and wonderful stories. And in it, it's called Vital Signs, The Nature and Nurture of Passion. And so there's going to be a picture up here of a fella in a moment. And this is Jay Valusek, and he wrote a book called Secret Sorrow. And what his journey was, so I'm reading a bit of it because I haven't got it all memorized, and there's such great detail that I don't want to miss too much of it, but I also don't want to be reading to you. Well, what he was as a young man, he was very called to science and scripture, and he was trying to balance that out. And so what he, he did was that he really threw himself into his spirituality. And the spirituality at that time was... It was called, he joined a group called Way International, a charismatic, creationist, literalist, fundamentalist, healing, preaching, saving the world kind of group for which he served as missionary and leader for nine years while simultaneously majoring in geology in college. So they had them both gone. I arrived in school as a creationist, a literal six-day creationist. And there are people on the planet that believe that God created the planet in six days and on the seventh day he rested. He said, a literal six-day creationist, and within two semesters, I abandoned it completely and started studying geology, 
paleontology, cultural anthropology, archaeology, astronomy, cosmology, and eventually becoming a petroleum geologist. He said after college, though, he taught theology and Christian living in the Episcopal Church, followed by 12 years on a contemplative path, all of it accompanied by by concerted and unsuccessful efforts to fulfill what he believed was his call to ministry. So he wanted to step into ministry, but he, you know, he was so unsettled in his own being. He's like, where do I step? Where do I go? He said, I went so far as to wanting to become a monk, which I'm thinking about right now myself, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Cultural anthropology, um, I'm sorry. Uh, so he said that I love this part. I went so far as to wanting to become a monk and actually had a hand-tailored monastic robe made for myself. So if I'm up here in a robe next week, you know what's happening, okay? (laughs) One cold November night in 2003, after what he described as a long, slow, gradual dissolution, which he chronicled in his book about the experience, The Secret Sorrow, he sat down with a pad of paper for three days continuously and asked himself, what do I know about God? He listed 100 items, most of which are not for the easily offended. They included... The mere fact that theologians still write elaborate proofs of the existence of God after thousands of years proves that God's existence is not obvious. I prefer the image of God that I know to the mystery that exists beyond the image. Faith in the God of Scripture requires a radical trust in the documents themselves. When my confidence in the holy writings is shaken, the images they portray begin to fracture. In the widening cracks, if you look closely, you will see only darkness. Unbelief in the face of God, God's unknowability is an entirely reasonable response. Skeptics, therefore, may be closer to the mystery than we are. He says, all those years when I thought God had been speaking to me and guiding me, I realized I'd actually been talking to myself, guiding myself by my own inner wisdom, comforting and challenging myself. I was God most of the time. Life and accident and happenstance were God some of the time, and traditional or modern concepts and ideas about God were God the rest of the time. I was so startled and disturbed by what I wrote that I knew I had finally touched upon the truth, at least my truth. What I felt as if I still believed. I also sensed that I was trying just a bit too hard to believe. We've all seen that. We've all done that. You know, we, we reach, a, we, we, you know, we honor all traditions here. We say that. And people will challenge me at times and say, well, then you guys stand for nothing because I know what I believe. And it's like, well, I believe in the goodness of life and I believe, I believe in the presence of spirit everywhere present. I believe God's alive in each person. That's a bit broad when you tell people that. Well, then who's, you know, who's, who's making the rules? Well, as a matter of fact, we are. You know, the, the, the Ten Commandments, that's the beginning point. I mean, and we need the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of people out there that need those. They don't necessarily live by them, at least, but they know when they go off the rails. But that's not the end, that's not the end point. That's the beginning. To so love your neighbor. You know. When I honestly reviewed my experience of God, I became aware that God was mostly absent, and every moment of presence was a bit, at best ambiguous. The concept of God eventually came to, to feel off to me. I feel like I saw through it. I could no longer sustain my belief in the reality of God. There just wasn't any evidence, and I was still enough of a scientist to require something more than wishful thinking. All the old beliefs I had relied on to make the sense of the world that had given my life meaning simply vanished. I awoke to the dream of God. We all have a dream of God, but that's the way we're wired, and we can always change it and make it richer and deeper. 
He's no longer a theist, but counts himself one among a breed of non-theists called religious naturalists, who claim as their own Albert Einstein, theologian Paul Tillich, and E.O. Wilson, the father of sociobiology, as well as many of the mainstream denominations, Christians, Quaker, Buddhist, though they won't be your standard models. Religious naturalists believe that the wonder they feel at God's creation is no less wonderful. In fact, more so, for leaving God out of the equation and going with a fact-based rather than faith-based approach to life, which still leaves intact the religious impulse, that hunger for connection to something greater than themselves that appears to have been factory installed by us by social evolution, if not, as some believe, by genetics. So the wonder, you know, for me, I live across the street from a park and it has one of those beautiful uh, uh, blossoming cherry trees. They blossom for a week, and they're so beautiful. And I look at that, and I'm just captured by it. And to me, that's an experience of God, what it does for me internally. And it opens me up, and I realize, oh, my gosh, something that can create this can create anything. So as we teach here, God is a principle, that God is available to all of us all the time, that we are immersed in the smoke of spirit right now. And and, and I was so inspired when I read this, because I thought, isn't it interesting? But we all got to start somewhere. I started out in a tradition that was very narrow, and very biased towards other traditions. And I realized, you know what, I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's what Jesus of Nazareth had in mind, along with all the other avatars. What has this brought us to? Religious naturalists believe that the wonder they feel at God's creation is no less wonderful, in fact, more so, for leaving God out of the equation and going with a fact-based rather than faith-based approach to life. Historically, when humans made sacrifices, what we sacrificed was the fatted calf, our best sheep, the cream of the crop, something we wanted for something we wanted even more, which was the good graces of our gods and goddesses. But Jay's purpose had been just the opposite. He sacrificed his relationship with a god in order to make his earthly life more sanctified. That's a huge, that's a huge sacrifice, isn't it? The certainty of what others have given us to all of a sudden be more present in our lives. He gave up the supernatural for the natural. He gave up the prospect of heaven and immortality. And a landlord, he, he was taught he could petition for an extension of his lease on life. For a more certain benedictions that only life we know is the only life we know we have. And the infinite life has encouraged him to straighten out his priorities more insistently than an infinite life. What I lost was eternal life, but what I got was this life here and now. If there's no eternal life, when do you live? You live now. I have a kind of faith in the present that I didn't have then, and I feel I'm finally living here. I also look back and realize that I squandered millions of present moments because I believe there was an infinite amount of time. I didn't have to pay attention to this moment because there was an eternity of them. Not anymore. So I just think it's, it's lovely and so empowering when I read something like that, someone's journey, because I identify with that journey. I had to put down, I had to sacrifice the God of my youth to open myself up to the mystery and the wonder and the, and, and the possibilities in a way and to stand in the faith of that. Because I do believe in goodness. I do believe in the presence of spirit in life. But it's unique to me. And I can't convince anyone or force anyone to, to share my beliefs, but I can show up in the present moment and know that I'm, I, I, that I'm in a deep and beautiful relationship with the God of my knowing that will inform and instruct me in my relationships with everyone. And then it becomes a present moment everyday activity, not an hour a week. I used to say that I grew up with a group of, of gas, gas station Catholics. We would fill up for an hour every week. And then we would go out in the world. 
and do whatever we wanted to do. And we'd come back Saturday afternoon and we would confess everything we were embarrassed about. And then we'd fill up for another week. And then we'd do the whole thing again. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting, isn't it? Okay. So let's pray. Let's just ground this in prayer and then our beautiful musicians will take us to a beautiful, beautiful song. So what I know in this moment, I'm so grateful for this community. I'm so grateful for the aliveness of spirit to know that each and every one of us, wherever we are on our journey, is right and perfect, that we could be no other place. We could have come no other way to cut ourselves some break, to think that we are unique and that we have character defects. Everyone has character defects. Get in line. So what I know right here and right now is I honor all of it. I know that my character defects and all the things that I think are broken or incomplete within myself are just ideas that I've latched onto based on my history. But principle is not bound by precedent. So this infinite divine intelligence is always saying yes. And the new ideas I bring to it are not in any way inhibited by my past. And so I start fresh this day. My opportunity to have amnesia about the things that I hold myself accountable for or blame myself for no longer have that charge. I move forward beautifully and powerfully in the wonder and the joy of living, of sharing, supporting my my brothers and sisters upon this planet in ways I can't even imagine, but I stand ready, willing, and able to do that. Knowing that we are blessed beyond measure, I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is.